Bringing you the latest in tax credit news, this is Tax Credit Tuesday with your host, Michael Novogratik. The legislative challenges have been significant. We very much need the legislation. we got to produce housing. We're still in a very volatile industry. It's a challenging atmosphere for almost anyone. We can't get all these mixed signals and messages. If he doesn't have a bipartisan bill, nothing's going to happen. Alternative energy is still very expensive. Hello, I'm Michael Novogratik, and this is Tax Credit Tuesday. Today is Tuesday, June 26, 2012. I'm in Denver, Colorado today, attending the National Council of State Housing Agencies annual tax credit conference. I begin this week's podcast with a quick review of last week's hearing, Senate Finance Committee hearing that is, on the looming fiscal and tax crisis. I also have an update on the Small Business Tax Cut Bill or Possible Tax Cut Bill and a brief description of the so-called Robin Hood tax. In this week's historic tax credit discussion, I have an update on the historic Boardwalk Hall case. I will also discuss the National Park Service's proposal to increase fees for the review of historic certification applications. Then, I'll discuss changes to state historic tax credits in both New York and in Iowa. In the low-income housing tax credit section of this week's podcast, I discuss a new report about the Section 1602 cash grant program and the tax credit assistance program. I will also review the findings of a study that examined the burden of housing costs on renters, as well as guidance issued by the California Tax Allocation Committee regarding sustainable building methods. In our New Market Tax Credit discussion, I have an announcement about the 2012 edition of the New Market Tax Credit Handbook and news from North Carolina, where a state New Market's tax credit is making its way through the state legislature. And finally, In our Renewable Energy segment, I'll discuss a letter that was sent by Microsoft and Sprint calling for an extension of the Energy Production Tax Credit. I will also share highlights from the OIG's recent report on the Section 1603 cash grant program and lowlights, not highlights, lowlights from the House Commerce Committee's most recent criticism of the same program. And last but not least, I'll review the proposed rule released by the Federal Housing Finance Agency that relates to PACE programs. If you're ready, let's get started. In general news, as I reported last week, the Senate Finance Committee held a hearing called Confronting the Looming Fiscal Crisis. At the hearing, two witnesses spoke, former Senator Pete Domenici and former White House Budget Director Alice Rivland, one a Republican, one a Democrat, and both co-chairs of the Debt Reduction Task Force with the Bipartisan Policy Center. The pair discussed their updated version of the plan that they originally released in November of 2010. Their updated plan would cut individual income tax rates to 15 and 28 percent, as well as cut the corporate tax rate to 28 percent, down from the current 35 percent rate. During the hearing, Ms. Rivlin suggested that Congress should completely start over and draft an entirely new tax code. Now, while this may be popular rhetoric, I can tell you that finding the theoretical starting point of the tax code when you say start over isn't that easy. 
So you can't take her suggestion too literally. For instance, was Ms. Rivlin suggesting limiting all business tax deductions? That's it, you start off with really a gross income tax? I don't think so. Plus, is she suggesting that all tax-exempt entities should lose their tax-exempt status? I don't think she was necessarily suggesting that either. Furthermore, she doesn't discuss how she determine income. Is it cash basis? Is it accrual basis? What about deposits and prepaid income, cost of goods sold? So as you can see, even when you say you want to start from scratch, it isn't all that easy because you don't know where scratch is. When she did suggest starting from scratch, she went on to say that all income would be taxable and then you'd have to figure out which tax expenditures are absolutely essential. I'll note that in his opening statement, Senator Max Baucus called for a comprehensive debt reduction plan that included some portion of tax revisions and reform, however, a plan that did not, quote, shock the system with deep, immediate cuts. Now, the Finance Committee is going to continue its series of hearings on tax reform this Thursday with a hearing entitled Tax Reform and the Tax Treatment of Capital Gains. The Thursday hearing is a joint hearing with the Ways and Means Committee. This joint hearing is designed to review the tax treatment of capital gains in the context of comprehensive tax reform. The witnesses will be Mr. David Brockway, a partner with the law firm Bingham McCutcheon, Dr. Lawrence Lindsay, President and CEO of the Lindsay Group, Dr. Leonard Berman from Syracuse University, and Mr. David Varell, Founder and Managing Director, Hub Angels Investment Group, LLC. Staying with the Senate, reports from Washington, D.C. indicate that the Senate could consider a bill this week that would provide a 10% income tax credit for employers that create new jobs or increase wages, all during 2012. This bill was introduced and is numbered S-2237 and is entitled the Small Business Jobs and Tax Relief Act. Under the bill, the credit, the 10% tax credit, would be capped at $500,000 per employer. Now, S-2237 would also, and this is what's probably of more note to most of our listeners, would extend 100% bonus depreciation on qualified capital through 2012. That would apply to all employers, and it's another effort to encourage investment this year. Now I'd like to turn to this so-called Robin Hood tax. Last week, a new lobbying campaign emerged. The campaign is aimed at creating a tax on financial transactions as a way to raise revenue that would be used to boost the economy and support certain social programs. The so-called Robin Hood tax, as proposed by this campaign, would be equal to less than one-half of one percent on trading in stocks and possibly something smaller on bonds, derivatives, and currencies. According to the campaign's website, the proposal's supporters include labor unions, small business owners, environmentalists, movie stars, musicians, and business people like Bill Gates, as well as politicians. Now, hearing Bill Gates supports it makes me wonder, wonder rhetorically, if Mr. Gates thinks purchases of software should also be subject to this less than one-half of one percent tax. Now, moving for the moment to the House, on Wednesday, June 27th, the House Ways and Means Committees 
Human Resources Subcommittee is going to hold a hearing titled How Welfare and Tax Benefits Can Discourage Work. Now, it's worth noting that the low-income housing tax credit and the new market tax credit benefit low-income workers, and those two tax credits are structured in ways that do not discourage. Rather, they are structured in ways that will help encourage work. So we don't expect either one of those two credits to make any sort of cameo at the hearing, but we'll be watching, and if they do, we'll report about it next week. In historic tax credit news, oral arguments were heard yesterday in the historic Boardwalk Hall case, this in the Third Circuit in Philadelphia. The court was originally scheduled to hear the case on April 20th. As listeners may recall, last year, the Internal Revenue Service appealed the case to the Third Circuit Court of Appeals. The IRS is asking the court to reverse the tax court decision in the case of Historic Boardwalk Hall LLC versus Commissioner. The outcome of this appeal could have significant repercussions for the historic tax credit industry, and as such, we continue to watch the outcome closely. The case involves a conservatively structured operating partnership in which the investor held a 99.99% interest throughout the five-year period following placement service of the asset. Experts believe that the pending appeals court decision may answer the question, it will certainly inform the question, that the IRS continues to pose in a number of circumstances, and that's whether traditional historic tax credit structures that rely on managing member guarantees, fixed priority returns, and standard put-and-call exit strategies that use these to attract limited partner capital, whether or not these structures can meet the requirements for characterization as a federal tax partnership. Now, early reports from those at the hearing suggest that the three-judge panel was particularly tough on counsel for Historic Boardwalk Hall and were less difficult with IRS counsel. The judges asked where the risk was with respect to the investor, as they noted various guarantees that reduced risk for Pitney Bowes. Apparently, the judges also questioned whether Pitney Bowes was really a lender as opposed to an equity investor. Now, I note that it appears there wasn't much questioning as to the counterparty risk that Pitney Bowes was exposed to under these various guarantees. I'll also note that apparently at least one judge noted that Congress does want historic tax credits to be used to incentivize rehabilitation of historic properties and also noted that the IRS hasn't given guidance as to how to structure transactions. Now you can find a copy of the briefs filed in this case and related materials online at www.historictaxcredits.com. And once we get a transcript of the actual hearing yesterday, we'll post it online as well. And in the interim, if you have any questions about the impact of this case on your historic tax credit development, please contact my partner, Tom Bosha. He's in our Cleveland, Ohio office. Now, I also want to note some other news coming out of the National Park Service. Last week, the National Park Service proposed changes to the fees that it charges for reviewing historic preservation certification applications. Now, these fees have not changed in nearly 30 years. 
Now, regular or long-time listeners may recall that the Park Service raised the issue of changing these fees in June of 2011. In planning to revise the fees, the Park Service studied its direct and indirect costs associated with the review of certification applications. The Park Service says it also studied application fees charged by state governments under similar state historic preservation tax credit programs, as well as fees charged by local governments for review of development projects. In the notice that was published on Friday, the Park Service says the proposed, once again, the proposed increases would be at a higher percentage of cost than the original fee structure from 1984. But even with these increases, these proposed fees are projected to be less than the direct cost of the program. Now, the 1984 fee schedule set fees of between $500 and $2,500, depending on project costs. The new fee schedule sets the fee at between $800 and $6,500, depending on project costs. I do note, though, that the new schedule charges no fee for projects under $50,000. The new fees will apply only to new applications received by state historic preservation offices after the effective date of the fee schedule. Now, additional details about the Park Service's proposal can be found in the Federal Register Notice, which has been posted to www.historictaxcredits.com, and written comments will be accepted until July 23rd, 2012. Now, at the state level, the New York legislature has voted to increase the historic tax credit project cap. Specifically, just before closing out the 2012 legislative session in New York last week, both houses passed a bill that would more than double the maximum award available under the state's historic preservation tax credit. The measure would increase the amount of historic tax credits available from $5 million to $12 million. Now, at the time of this recording, it was unclear whether Governor Andrew Cuomo would sign the bill, and this would be S-6134. It is also important to note that while the legislation would greatly increase the maximum threshold for an award, the credit remains at 20% of eligible expenditures. The bill's sponsors say this move would encourage developers who may be dissuaded by the low $5 million project cap. It would encourage these developers to rehabilitate larger and more blighted properties. They also expect the change to increase the number of properties that will be rehabilitated under the historic preservation credit. If the governor does sign the bill, the program change would apply to taxable years on or after January 1, 2012. So it is a bit retroactive. You can find a copy of 6134 at www.historictaxcredits.com. And in Iowa, state lawmakers enacted legislation last month to clarify the partnership rules concerning how to claim the state's historic preservation tax credit. Under the new law, outlined in House File 2465, the amount claimed by an individual partner, shareholder, or member is limited to the amount designated by the eligible partnership S corporation or limited liability company. This rule is effective for tax credits reserved for a fiscal year beginning on or after July 1. And you can find the text of House File 2465 at www.historictaxcredits.com. In local housing tax credit news, a new GAO report is out. And in the report, the GAO finds that all housing finance agencies met let me say that again. All housing finance agencies met their December 2011 disbursement deadlines for funds that they had received under the Section 1602 cash grant program. In the report released last week, they said that most 
Housing finance agencies also met their February 2012 deadline to spend Tax Credit Assistance Program, or TCAP, funds. In addition, the GAO, and that's the Government Accountability Office, the GAO report, says that almost all HFAs reported that the funds helped restart stalled affordable housing projects that otherwise would not have moved forward. To create the report, the GAO says it obtained data on program expenditures for TCAP and Section 1602 from both HUD and Treasury, respectively. In addition, the GAO developed a web-based survey for HFAs in all 50 states, the District of Columbia, and U.S. territories. In response to the survey, HFAs reported that project developers plan to use Section 1602 funds, TCAP funds, or a combination of these, as well as other funding sources, to develop 2,373 projects. That's 2,373 projects that aggregated 126,058 tax credit units. Now, an appendix to the report shows some of the survey results. Now, I say some because there's an interesting point to note. Some of the survey results are not shown, namely the responses to the questions regarding the low-income housing tax credit market and its recovery, as well as responses about the impact of the Community Reinvestment Act on tax credit pricing. Now, why aren't those survey results available? Well, the report indicates that these responses were intentionally not reported because they'll be published in a forthcoming report. Novograd and Company will announce availability of that report as soon as it's made public. In the meantime, a copy of the GAO's findings on the Recovery Act programs can be found online at www.taxcredithousing.com. Now, let's turn to the University of New Hampshire Carsey Institute study. The Carsey Institute study, or report, found that more renters were overburdened by housing costs in 2010 than they were in 2007. The Carsey Institute, which conducts policy research on vulnerable children, youth, and families, and on sustainable community development, they found in their report, renters more often burdened by housing costs after the recession, that nationwide, 49% of all renters were cost burdened in 2010. Now that definition of cost burden means they spent more than 30% of their income on housing in 2010. The highest rates of cost burden renters were in the West and in central cities. In all regions, as well as in urban, suburban, and rural areas, the percentage of overburdened renters increased from 2007 to 2010. Now, which areas had the largest increase? Rural areas. They increased 4.3%. Suburban areas saw an increase of 3.4%, and central cities saw an increase in the over-rent or the burden rate of 2.9%. Nearly 60% of renters under the age of 25 were also found to be rent overburdened. That in 2010. And as you are probably not too surprised, households earning between 20000 and 50000 had the largest increase in the proportion of cost overburdened renters. Now this report contains additional statistics and a number of useful informational charts. And you can find a copy of the report on the Affordable Housing Resource Center under the Reports and Research tab. Now turning to California, if you're a developer that's applying for loan housing tax credits in California, 
you need to be aware of the Tax Allocation Committee's Sustainable Building Method Point Scoring Requirements and their minimum construction standards. TCAC released a workbook last week to help team members and energy consultants implement these Sustainable Building Method requirements for their 9% deals. 4% applicants should also use the workbook to fulfill TCAC's requirements regarding minimum construction standards. Part of the workbook is designed to be completed and submitted with all low-income housing tax credit applications. Now the good news here is that because the 9% application deadline is right around the corner, namely July 25th, TCAC is not requiring any of that documentation be submitted with the 2012 second round. However, all they say that again, all 2012 9% and 4% applicants are expected to fully comply with the requirements when they're submitting their place and service packages. A copy of the Sustainable Building Methods and Energy Efficient Requirements Workbook can be downloaded from the TCAC website. And if you have any questions about these requirements or your loan housing tax credit or tax and fund applications, I invite you to call my partner in the San Francisco office, Jim Kroger. You can reach Jim at 415-356-8000. In New Market Tax Credit news, at the time of this recording, the New Market Tax Credit community, and Novogratz and Company included, is still eagerly awaiting the opening of the next application allocation round. As I have mentioned before, the round is supposed to open no sooner or no earlier than the end of June. So now we're at the end of June, so now we'll wait and see if it's this week or next week or soon thereafter. And as soon as we do learn any additional details regarding the release of the application or the notice of allocation availability, Novograd and Company will send an industry alert email. So stay tuned and make sure that you're registered for that free industry alert email. In the meantime, I invite you to brush up on your knowledge of the program with the recently released 2012 edition of the New Market Tax Credit Handbook. This guide explains the New Market Tax Credit program from application development to project financing through to compliance. And for more information about the handbook, simply go to www.novaco.com backslash products. Now at the state level, in North Carolina, a bill to create a state-level New Market Tax Credit program is making its way through the General Assembly. The bill is also known as North Carolina New Market's Job Growth Investment Initiative establishes a state credit for qualified equity investments. And the credits are, however, subject to recapture if certain provisions aren't met, and the credits are capped at $40 million per fiscal year. At the time of this recording, the bill had not yet moved out of the state's General Assembly. You can find a copy of the bill online at the New Market Tax Credit Resource Center. In Renewable Energy Tax Credit news, in a report published on June 15th, Standard & Poor's Ratings Services looks at what influences the market for renewable projects, which tax incentives help finance them, and what the expiration of these incentives might mean for the U.S. utility sector. The report is called are entitled, The Credit Impact on U.S. Electric Utilities of Federal Renewable Energy Tax Credits. In the report, S&P says it seems almost inevitable that renewable project developments will decline as tax credits expire. But how quickly that will happen and how aggressively renewable developers will build knowing 
that their window is closing is uncertain. And given the narrowing time frame for tax incentives, S&P anticipates a flurry of financing activity the analysts believe will marginally improve the utility's credit quality. Now let's turn to a letter. Microsoft and Sprint delivered a letter last week to congressional leadership asking for an extension of the energy production tax credit. The letter calls on Congress to act immediately to extend the production tax credit before it expires at the end of the year. Both Fortune 100 companies have made substantial commitments to renewable energy. The American Wind Energy Association says that Microsoft and Sprint are the largest wind customer companies to call on Congress to extend the PTC. And they rank 37th and 90th respectively in the Fortune 500. And they have combined annual revenues of over $100 billion. According to the Environmental Protection Agency, Microsoft is the third largest purchaser of green power in the United States. More than 1.1 billion kilowatt hours annually. And that's equivalent to 46% nearly half of Microsoft's electricity use. Sprint, on the other hand, is the only wireless provider to be included on the EPA Green Power Partners National Top 50 list. In 2006, Sprint announced a five-year agreement with Kansas City Power & Light that facilitated the development of the Spearville, Kansas Wind Farm. Then in 2010, Wind Power provided 93% of the energy needs for Sprint's 200-acre campus in Overland Park, Kansas. In this letter to Congress, the two companies write, and I quote, failure to extend the PTC for wind would tax our companies and thousands of others like us that purchase significant amounts of renewable energy and hurt our bottom line at a time when the economy is struggling to recover. Microsoft and Sprint, I note, join 15 other major U.S. companies and consumer brands, which include such brands as Starbucks, Nike, Campbell's Soup, Staples, and Yahoo, that signed a similar letter back in February. Now let's turn to the Office of Inspector General for the Treasury Department. Last week, Treasury's OIG released its semi-annual report to Congress, covering the period October 1, 2011 to March 31, 2012. In that report, Inspector General Eric M. Thorson made two mentions of the Section 1603 cash grant program. He said that the office has focused on investigating and eliminating improper payments, bringing to justice those who have defrauded the 1603 program, and they've been working on recovering fraudulently awarded funds and preventing the improper award of funds before they happen. Later in the report, he said that the office has found some questionable claims involving several million dollars, and that the office will continue to investigate the Section 1603 program and projects, and they'll report any abuse as necessary. As you may recall, the Inspector General last year released audits of five projects, and the office is expected to release an audit of the 1603 program sometime in the near future. Once that report or the audit of the Section 1603 program is available, We'll post it to the Renewable Energy Tax Credit Resource Center, as well as send a breaking news email. In the meantime, you can read the Office of the Inspector General's report to Congress and the five project audits on our website. And in Congress, last week, the Energy and Commerce Subcommittee on Oversight and Investigations released a report called, and I'll 
let you guess the tone or tenor of the report. It's called, Where Are the Jobs? The Elusiveness of Job Creation Under the Section 1603 Grant Program for Renewable Energy. Hmm. As listeners may recall, in March, Commerce Committee Chairman Fred Upton and Oversight and Investigation Subcommittee Chairman Cliff Stearns launched an inquiry into the Energy Cash Grant Program, specifically related to jobs data. In a statement posted last week, the lawmakers contend that the information gathered by the committee reveals that the Section 1603 program produces very few long-term jobs at a high, and those jobs that are produced are at a high per job cost to taxpayers. That said, the report notes that the job creation numbers that exist for Section 1603 are based on models, not actual data. Also, according to the report, neither Treasury nor the Department of Energy have turned over actual jobs data on the Section 1603 cash grant program. And finally, I'd like to alert you to a notice related to PACE programs, a notice that the Federal Housing Finance Agency published last week. PACE stands for Property Assessed Clean Energy. The programs are run by state and local governments, and they provide property owners with debt financing for energy retrofits. Homeowners can use the programs, and most notably the funds from the loans, to install renewable energy systems on their property. And then depending on the financing arrangements, these systems may also be eligible for investment or production tax credits. Under most of the programs, however, the PACE financing moves ahead, that's right, ahead of the mortgage financing, thereby subordinating Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac security interests in the property if they're the lenders. Because of this, FHFA directed Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac not to purchase mortgages where PACE financing had a priority lien that was ahead of the Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac lien. Several lawsuits were brought against FHFA for issuing this directive. And as part of a preliminary injunction that was issued by the Northern District Court of California, the agency released an advance notice of proposed rulemaking back in January. The agency took into account more than, get this, 33,400 comments that it received. And they issued a notice of proposed rulemaking on June 15th. Now, in this notice of proposed rulemaking, the agencies proposed the following. One, the GSEs, that's Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, will immediately take such actions that are necessary to secure or preserve their right to immediately call a loan that's secured by mortgage that becomes, without the consent of the mortgage holder, subject to a first lien pace obligation. So essentially, they want to call the mortgage if a first lien pace obligation arises. These actions may include, to the extent necessary, interpreting or amending the enterprises, that's Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac's, uniform security instruments. Two, the GSEs will not purchase or shall not purchase any mortgage that's subject to a first lien pace obligation. And the third part of the proposed rule, the GSEs shall not consent to the imposition of a first lien pace obligation on any mortgage. The FHFA issued the directive and the proposed rules because they considered the PACE financing to be a safeness and soundness concern. According to the agency, the PACE financing transfers risk from the lender of the energy retrofit monies and of the homeowner to the GSEs. In addition to the proposed rules, the agency has also included a few alternative rule suggestions in its notice.
Now, FHFA is going to accept comments on the proposed rule until July 30th, 2012. And given that there were over 33,000 comments submitted before, I expect there'll be a large number of comments on this proposed rule. And it also should be noted that while the agencies published the rule, that as required by the California court, it also appealed the court's decision. The U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit stayed in the obligation to publish a final rule. If the FHFA's appeal of the case is successful, its earlier directive to the enterprises will stand, and it remains to be seen what the outcome is going to be. Now, this entire notice can be found at the Renewable Energy Task Force Resource Center, and I'll update you in future podcasts as the case continues to move through the courts. Well, that brings me to the end of this week's report. Please join me again next week for another Tax Credit Tuesday. Among other topics, I'll discuss the latest developments in Texas, where the plaintiff in a court case against the Texas Department of Housing and Community Affairs has responded to the department, TDHDA's, plan to address concerns regarding its allocation of local housing tax credits. And also, if you're in Denver at the NCSHA conference, please swing by our booth and say hello. This is Michael Novogratik, and I'll be back next week. Thanks for listening. This weekly podcast has been brought to you by Novogratik & Company, LLP. Archive discussions are available online at www.novogratik.com slash podcast or by subscribing to the Novogratik Report on tax credits in iTunes. Novogratik & Company, LLP, is a national certified public accounting and consulting firm with 13 offices nationwide. Learn more about our professional services at www.novaco.com.